So I know it is a little early to be talking about Christmas. There's no groans when I say that. So all of you are already preparing for Christmas. I know that it's a little early to be talking about Christmas. Should we, we still have a week until Halloween. Um, but don't tell Home Depot. I, I stopped by this last week. We had this small home project that, that I had to pick up some, some wood glue for. And, um, and, I, and I went to Home Depot to get it and I got sucked in. I got sucked in by all of the, 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 the Christmas decorations. And I walked up to a guy that was already restocking something. And, and I said, oh, already? Like, it's not, even, it's not even Halloween yet. And he said, hey, we've been having this stuff out here for three weeks. And people keep coming and buying. So it's, it's here. It's here, whether, whether or not we, we, we like it. Uh, we've been journeying through Nehemiah this fall, and the part of the story that we are in this morning reminds me a bit of, of one of the more well-known Christmas stories that we might read or, or watch at some point in the next month or two, a, a story that most of us know, uh, a, a Christmas carol. Most of us know that, that Dickens story. Ne- Nehemiah answered the call to lead his people through the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And he got to work restoring the, the walls, restoring the city with the people and they, after they had been in exile for generations. As they finished building the wall, a few neighboring communities, they're threatened. They're threatened and they're thinking, oh, they're, they're going to return to prominence. What are we going to, to do with this? And last week we saw that Nehemiah responded to the, the pressure from both within and, and from beyond the walls of Jerusalem by, by trusting God and by clinging to truth. Chapters 7 and 8 of Nehemiah, they, they largely serve as a recording of all of those who had returned to the city. Ezra gathers the new residents together in front of the water gate, kind of in a, a public square, and they read the law. They split into groups and they, they study. It's really kind of the precursor for Sunday school or for small groups. They get together and they study the law for, for a quarter of the day, and, and then they, they spend the time in worship and, and, and confessing. It kind of is in the middle of this time, the, the celebration of the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles, which is almost like Thanksgiving, a time to give thanks for the harvest and to remember what God had done for their ancestors after they were freed from Egypt. Then we get to chapter 9. And it's almost as if, like Ebenezer Scrooge, Nehemiah spends time walking through the past, present, and future, though I don't think he does so with the same sort of bah humbug attitude that, that Scrooge does. So in our, our first scripture passage this morning, the, the one that, that Bob read, we, we see and hear about the people in Jerusalem, that they're, they're covering themselves with sackcloth and, and ashes, a sign really for, for grieving or, or, or dust, uh, and a longing for repentance. Then the priests or the, the Levites, they call out and they invite them to turn their mourning into a, a celebration of sorts. There had been difficult times in the past throughout their, their history, but in the middle of all of the difficulties that they had experienced, God had remained faithful and they were reminding themselves of that reality. And so they cry out, You alone are Lord. 
You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur and the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gagarishites. See, Bob, they're hard there too. You have kept the pro- your promise because you are righteous. They, they, they remember. They, they remember, and the next 30 or so verses contain a long litany of, of confessing for their ancestors. And we're going to get into this in a, in a few minutes, what, what this actually means. But this confession, I want to make it clear, it is both an acknowledgement of sin and an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. It's not like they just confess for the sin and brokenness and then they stop there. It's acknowledgement of, okay, yes, we are a broken people. Yes, we are flawed. Yes, we have been screwed up. And God, you are still good and you will always be good. And so sometimes we get caught up with confession and we kind of put it in this box of this, this one thing where we are confessing our brokenness, our sin. But here we see that confession is both that, yes, we are broken, and we confess, and God, you are good. You are good and your grace is sufficient always. And as the confession concludes, we read this. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of, kings, of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in your, their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces." Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And all our leaders, our Levites and our priests, are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past week on Thursday and Friday, seven or eight of us from WBC gathered with about 30 people from our, our community, from other churches in our community, over in our fellowship center for a simulcasted grandparenting summit. And, and the, the 40 or so folks who were here joined with 5,000 other people uh, across the country to explore some of the joys and some of the challenges that come with being an intentional Christian grandparent. And all how that looks in in today's world. On the first day of the conference, a few of our guests who didn't know that I was the pastor, they they saw me and they kind of looked at me. They were kind of perplexed. Well, what are you doing here? 
It turns out I'm a little young to be a grandpa. But as the conference went on, I enjoyed getting to have conversations with folks. I enjoyed getting to be a part of the conference. And it wasn't because I agreed with everything that was said. I I, I definitely didn't. Or because I thought it was incredibly entertaining, though there are parts of it that were definitely entertaining. It was because there was something refreshing about being a part of an intergenerational conversation about faith, about who Jesus was and who Jesus is and who we believe Jesus will be. There was something refreshing about being a part of intentional conversation about how do we create community around our faith, around what we believe. In the middle of the speakers reminding grandkids that it's never too late to reach out to their own grandkids or somebody else's grandkids, or we're sharing the research that kids actually remain in church when five older adults invest in one kid. So, so we typically think of, of youth ministry, right? And we think we have one advisor for five kids. But statistics actually show that it takes five adults investing in one kid for, to get them to stay in church when they become an adult. And so in the middle of those, those types of conversation, I heard a bit of a, a confession A bit of a confession. There was definitely pain. Pain about family situations. Personal pain. Pain about the state of the church. Pain about the state of the world. And there was this desire. This is what got me excited to be a part of the conversation. There was a desire to do something. Or rather to be open to what God was already doing and saying, God, put me in a place where we can be a part of finding whatever it is next that you are doing in our world. One of the speakers shared that one of the the greatest gifts a grandparent can give their grandkid or really uh, anybody who's older can can give a, a child is their own personal story. Sharing their story, their past being honest with their struggles, with their doubts about faith, with their joys, with their journey. Evidence of places where, God, where, where, where times when, when God's grace showed up. It's something that we're reminded of over and over again in Scripture, the sharing of story from one generation to the next. And and that's what we see in this part of Nehemiah, one generation reflecting on their history and talking about what it means for the present and what it means for the future. As we read earlier in the first part of chapter 9, the residents who had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, they they come together, they read scripture, and they spend a quarter of the day in confession. A quarter of the day in confession. Can you imagine? The Levites or the priests, the clergy, they stand up and they recount all of, or not all, most of the significant moments in their history from creation up to the time of Nehemiah. And we see this, this rhythm, this beautiful rhythm that's easy to miss if we don't pay attention. The priests, they're open, they're honest with the past, and they confess how God had provided. They, they admit the ways that they historically had fallen short, and then they come back to God's goodness, this confession 
It goes back and forth. Here's how we're broken. God, here's how you're good. Here's how we've fallen short. And here's how you've responded with grace. It goes back and forth and back and forth. I won't read through it all, but, but here's one example. In verse 9, the, the, the priests move on from Abram and, and tell of all the great things that God did through Moses. Deliverance from slavery. We know the story. The, the gift of the law, manna from heaven. And then in verse 16, we read, But our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. They were broken. This is what they did. But you are a forgiving God. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you see how that confession is? Yes, we're broken. But you, we confess, are a forgiving God, slow to anger and compassionate and loving. History reminds the priests of their imperfections, but it also reminded them that God always pulled the pieces back together. God's grace is has always been and always will be sufficient. So maybe, maybe the, the application for us here is to spend some time being honest with our own past. To be honest with the places where there's been brokenness and hurt, maybe both here in our own church community, but, but also for us personally. We need to be honest with those places. That's a part of confession. But a part of that application is also not getting stuck there. Not getting stuck in that place. To pay attention as we look into our past at the places where God's grace was, was evident, even when we have to look a little bit harder to see it. And sometimes looking to the past reminds us that, that God's grace is it's, it's still on the move in the present. So as the, the priests continue their confession, their language shifts just slightly to their present situation, to their, their present troubles. It almost rings of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. And the reminder for us here is, is pretty straightforward. And incredibly important. The God who responded to the needs of the people of the Old Testament is the same God who came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to restore and redeem humanity and is the same God who extends grace to you and to me today. God who has been moving throughout history continues to move today. I'm reminded of the breadth and depth of God's grace, when I talk with my, my youngest daughter, who many of you have met, she's running around here a lot, when, when, when we talk about uh, how much dad loves her, sometimes after a really hard day, I'll put her, put her to bed and I'll say, hey, how much, how much does daddy love you? And I'll hold up my fingers like this. Is it this much? And she'll say, no. And I'll say, is it, is it this much? No, Dad, it's more than that. It's almost like she, she thinks she's old enough now that she, she knows what's coming, so she just gets annoyed by it. And she says, Daddy, you love me this much. 
she throws her arms open. I imagine God having the same sort of conversation with all kinds of people. Do you remember how much I love you? It's not just this much. But what about my brokenness, God? What about my hurt? What about our pains? Is it, is it this much? No, it's not just that much. It's this much. We're invited to bring our whole selves to God, confessing who we are, confessing our brokenness, confessing who God is. And in the middle of it all, remembering that we are loved. Nehemiah's people, they they follow their confession with a, a commitment to the future. It's a covenant renewal of sorts. Now, usually in in the Bible, when when we read about covenant, it's God making a covenant with with people, not the other way around. And there's a debate to exactly what is taking place here in in the walls of Jerusalem, because remember that the the covenant is is typically God moving and the people responding. So what what happens here? What what happens in, in, in this place? I like to kind of think of it as a a renewal of vows, if you will. It's the people saying, God, we want to remember the covenant that you established. And we are going to commit ourselves to living and following, knowing that you have made a covenant with us. So we're invited to remember that God's grace was sufficient in the past and continues to be sufficient today. And we're also invited to respond to that grace, to to respond and to live as a people committed to accepting that grace as we move forward. We're going to spend a good amount of next year of 2022 journeying through Paul's letter to the church in in Rome. And there's a line that that Paul writes in in the fifth chapter of, of Romans that I think captures This idea that that God's grace was sufficient in the past is sufficient today and will continue to be sufficient in in the future. And and I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates it in in Romans chapter 5. Hear this. Sin didn't and sin doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us to life. A life that goes on and on and on and on. World without end. Friends, may we remember that God's grace is sufficient that it always has been and always will be. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for loving us beyond what we can even fathom. For responding to our our brokenness, our our hurt, our, our sin with an abundance of grace. Lord, may we respond to that grace with a commitment to be open and honest with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.